Welcome back. It's episode 154 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast, a special edition that we were not planning on. So I will dispense with the usual intro and just know that I'm Troy Senek here with the normal crew, Professor Richard Epstein of NYU Law, the University of Chicago and the Hoover Institution, and Professor John Yu of UC Berkeley AEI and the Hoover Institution. And fellas, in the over a decade that we've been doing this show, I think there have only been maybe two other occasions where we've dropped everything to throw a show together. Best I can recall, those were the Supreme Court ruling on Obamacare and uh, the death of Justice Scalia. But we've got a story on our hands, basically, unlike anything we've ever seen. So for months now, there has been anticipation of what was going to come out of the Supreme Court case out of Mississippi on abortion, universally recognized as the first big challenge to Roe v. Wade before a court that now has enough conservatives on it to pose a, a real danger to that precedent. In the oral arguments in this case, a few months ago, suggested that danger was very real. And now we get word of how the court is thinking about the case, but not on the court's own terms. So last night, Politico drops was probably one of the biggest journalistic scoops of all time. Not only do they report that five justices on the Supreme Court are going to vote to overturn Roe and Casey. This is all the Republican appointees minus Chief Justice Roberts. But they also obtain and post for public consumption the 98-page draft opinion written by Justice Alito. John, before we even get to the substance of this, you're a former Supreme Court clerk and indeed have argued before on this very show that one of the hallmarks of the Supreme Court's professionalism And one of the things that keeps it above the fray is that things like this don't happen. And you're already seeing people say, people who are critical of this perspective decision mostly, who cares about the stupid leak, given the gravity of of what was leaked? Why should people care? What does this mean to the Supreme Court? And what are the appropriate consequences for the actual leaker? It's important. And thanks, Troy, for pulling this together uh, in just a few hours. I think, it's, as you say, I think it's as equally important as uh, Obamacare or the passing of Justice Scalia. And the reason I think it matters is because the court is more important than abortion. Someone who would leak this opinion, which runs counter to the norms and traditions, not just of the Supreme Court, but all the lower federal courts, too, is interested, I think, believes abortion and winning is more important than the long-term institutional integrity of the Supreme Court. Because if you start having an environment where opinions are leaked, where the justices can't trust each other, they can't trust their clerks, they can't circulate drafts, they can't try to persuade and argue with each other confidentially, then the Supreme Court starts to become like the other political branches. Right? Then, I mean, leaking, you know, Troy, you were in the White House. Leaking is just part of everyday life in the executive branch. Right. Um, leaking's rampant in Congress. Uh, the court was always different and separate, not just because, and I think in part because it recognized law is different than politics. So if you, if you want either law and politics to be the same thing, or you want the court to have no special legitimacy, or you just want to try to influence decisions the way politicians always influence those decisions, then you'll be in favor of leaking. And, and let me also just say how extraordinary it is. And this is, as far as I know, this is the first time that 
an actual draft opinion was given to the press. I think there's one other case where an opinion by mistake somehow got released by the court at, by, by mistake, but nothing like anything of this importance. Like think about the opinions in the past, the Pentagon Papers, the Watergate tapes, you know, this Obamacare, you know, Brown versus Board. And then the cases have billions and billions of dollars of consequences in the financial markets and our economy. None of those have ever leaked before. So this is really a direct, I think, a real frontal attack by whoever did it on the court as an independent institution in our constitutional system. Richard, I, I don't want to get into the, the pure conjecture about where the leak came from, because as of this taping, it seems to be mostly guesswork, and we don't even have enough information to be able to distinguish what's an educated guess and what isn't. But it is, I think, kind of salient that everyone thinks everyone else has an incentive to leak this. You've heard theories that this is coming from the left, that they want to show the conservatives how severe the public backlash will be and scare one of them out of this opinion. You've heard theories that it comes from the right, that now with the draft text out there, the public is essentially going to be able to track changes on whatever comes out. So they're trying to keep Alito from watering any of this down. So in a way, whoever did this has now laid the predicate for this opinion to have a little bit of a legitimacy crisis with everyone. What do you think this means for the ultimate decision? I think it means very little. I mean, I think the chief justice has already said that notwithstanding the fact that we have this enormous hiccup, there's nothing that we can do as a court in order to alter our internal processes, which will get rid of this situation. The cat is out of the bag. What he's done is he's ordered an internal investigation. Uh, my view is it had to be an inside job. Uh, if I had to guess, I would think that the left has more to gain from this than the right in an effort to discredit. I think that will fail. I've read most, but not all of this opinion. It is 98 pages, but it is written like a law review article in a tome. There's not the slightest effort in this opinion to sort of hype the way in which the situation works. If I have to give you one ironic element of this case, you know what it is. There's an extensive Roman law background on this subject. Uh, but what happens is that the opinion only starts with the common law rules. It's interestingly enough, if you sort of go through the word list and put the word conception in, which is the strong view as to when it is that life begins. That word does not appear in this opinion. It's quite clear that what's going on here is there's an effort to essentially get rid of the restrictions that are associated with the trimester system originally created with respect to Roe v. Wade. Okay, you get rid of that, uh, but they don't want to sort of go back to, you know, conception begins at life. And so they stay away from that issue. And there's a reason for that. This opinion is a straight federalism opinion. This is something which ought to be left to the democratic processes. If you start talking about when conception begins, when life begins and all the rest of that stuff, then it becomes a question about the life of the fetus. If you took a very strong view that that is a human being or a human being incoming, uh, which was uh, some of the positions, certainly the Roman position in many of these cases, then you'd have to face the question as to whether you could prohibit the states from doing something on the grounds that the life that's lost was uh, 
lost without due process of law. And they didn't want to get into this debate. So what they did is they made it into a federalism decision. And I think if you actually try to find something in this which would be regarded as inflammatory, uh, I think Justice Alito, who wrote this thing, uh, went out of his way to make sure that that is not going to be there. So leaking this opinion, I do not think will uh, generate any kind of outrage. I think it will be that there's a calm and reasonably patient way to give a ruling which is profound on the one hand, but limited on the other hand. I think the conservatives are happy to sort of rally around this because many of them had decided to move away from the individual rights to the federalism issue. That's certainly captured by what happens in the Wall Street Journal and similar kinds of conservative publications. Um, I also think that in many ways, Doing it on the federalism ground makes it much less emphatic. I think New York and many other states have already passed statutes which said if Roe is overturned as a constitutional matter, we are now hereby adopting it and its various refinements as a legislative matter in our state. And so if you have the political process lined up in advance to sanctify a return to the Roe v. Wade position, uh, the question is, do you want to fight a hopeless constitutional rear guard battle or do you want to try to get your favorite legislator in your particular state to go along with the many states that have put this in this advantage? So I think, in effect, it was just a horrendous thing to do. If it's a justice, I think that justice would probably be forced off the Supreme Court. I think if it's a clerk, I think the clerk would be forced to resign. It was a clerk with the knowledge of the justice. You're getting into various states of mens rea. I hope we never have to get to that particular point. Uh, but I think that's going to happen is not that this will blow over. I think, if anything, it will prompt the earlier release of the opinions. This is now May 3rd, generally a case of this momentous importance is left to the last day of the term. It may be put forward. We still have to figure out what Justice Roberts' position is. Is he going to disagree with the three liberals on this particular court? Uh, is it going to be 5-3-1 or 5-4? What's going to be the grounds on the dissent? There are a lot of things that are left to know. Uh, but I think if you were to ask me as a betting man after the oral argument, what was the likelihood that Roe would be overruled? I would have said it was in the order of 85 to 90 percent. The only doubt being the status of Justice Russell of uh, Roberts, who would have never voted for Roe in the beginning, but whose institutional sense of stability may lead him to have a sort of an independent dissenting point of view. There is an argument, and I'll end on this note, that the Chief Justice tried to build consolidation across the various ranks and bridge the differences across the party. And now it looks like he's not even in the middle, but he seems to be pretty much alone, at least if he does, as I suspect, say 50, 60 percent of the time, he issues his own opinion. John, Richard mentioned that federalism point in the well, less than 24 hours since this has come out. Uh, Bernie Sanders has said that Congress needs to move immediately to pass statutory protections for abortion at the federal level. Chuck Schumer has said he wants to move on that, too. Uh, of course, the problem is that they need to nuke the filibuster and Manchin and Cinema have already said that this case doesn't change their mind there. Um, there's nothing better than the Washington press corps continually going back to them and asking, are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> but, but, but let's just imagine a world uh, where that did happen, where they did have the votes. To Richard's point, if this draft opinion was final, what powers would the federal government have left on abortion? This makes me so glad. One, again, that Bernie Sanders is not president because he hasn't read the Constitution or kept up with Supreme Court case law because Congress can't codify Roe. I, I don't even understand what that means. In fact, there's a series of decisions. Uh, City of Bernie is the 
most famous one, but there are other ones following, including the Voting Rights Act cases recently, that say Congress can't overrule a Supreme Court decision. So Congress couldn't pass a law, say, under its powers under the 14th Amendment and Section 5 and say, we hereby state, you know, all abortion laws in the country must survive the undue burden test of Casey and Roe. In fact, that's exactly like the law the Supreme Court has struck down several times in these other areas. What Congress could do would be the same kind of things it did in Obamacare to try to persuade the states, or if you want to go farther, say coerce the states into changing their laws on abortion. As Richard said, this is a federalism decision. It says, you know, the people who are complaining about abortion disappearing don't understand federalism. It just returns the question to the states. And if you look at the map, California, Illinois, and New York are going to still have very liberal abortion laws. A lot of the people in the country are going to be in states where uh, the standard in row is still going to exist. In fact, it might even be, abortion right might be broader than what the court's been allowing. So what Congress could do, suppose they use the spending power and said, we're going to make abortion costless for anybody who wants one. You go to a state that has it, or you're in a state that has it, the federal government will pay for it. Or the federal, the Congress could be even more coercive, and it could say, well, if you're in a state that doesn't have abortion, we're going to cut Medicare and Medicaid payments to the hospitals in those states by 25%, 20%, whatever figure you want to make it, make it. Those are all approved by the court in Obamacare, in the Obamacare case 10 years ago. Now, I don't think those will pass. I don't. I, I think actually, what happens, I think, is that. And Troy, you're you're the more the politics expert than me, Richard. But I would say, if I remember Congress, I'm glad this happened because before you didn't have to take votes on abortion because you kicked it over to the courts. Now the court says, you guys in Congress, you still don't have to take votes on abortion because the action's going to re- remove to the states, and so. This means it's great for your reelection. <laughs> you don't have to take votes on abortion where 40% of the country will hate you no matter what you do. So if you're a member of Congress, you could try, but ideally you should support that this goes back to the states for a decision. Look, I disagree with John on one point, and this is the battle we have had uh, over the Obamacare case. The issue in that particular case as to whether or not the state could condition um, the willingness to give these extra benefits or your basic Medicare payments on your willingness to take the extra deal was struck down unanimously by the Supreme Court. And John and I, if you remember, we had this long fight. I said the doctrine of unconstitutional conditions would sort of dictate that result, leaving open the question of what's done then, whether or not the whole statute falls or whether or not the severance is possible and a variety of issues. So I think, in fact, if they try the coercive situation, that's already decided by NFIB and it will fail. I don't think it's been decided about what happens if the Congress decides that it wants to give uh, free money out. Um, I think that's a kind of a really very controversial situation. Uh, There's going to be a question, ironically, if you give out money for people to get counseling so they can have an abortion, do you have to give it out to people so they could get counseling in order to avoid an abortion. The Harrison McRae question about do you have to be equal between the two sides? I would rather, if this is going to happen, that this be done by private foundations. If you're the Gates Foundation and you think strongly, you can set up a general grant program in which people 
people have to pay, say, 10% of the total amount, and you will pick up the rest. And I think doing it on the private side uh, would be much better in terms of the overall structure of how it is that these rights start to emerge. In general, I think that the effort to change the filibuster will be a dead loser under these circumstances. And I do think, in effect, that uh, if the Congress does try to really have a battle royal over this, um, I think in the end, the liberals will lose that particular battle because the state option seems to be sufficiently clear. Now, there is an interesting state problem. Way back in 1967, there was a case called Cosgrove and Gleitman, in which there was a Jewish patient in New Jersey of a Catholic doctor. Uh, The doctor had negotiated and noticed that the fetus had rubella or German meals, and he would not recommend abortion inside the state. And then the woman took off and she decided to go to New York, where abortions were legal at the time, and had that abortion. And so the question that you really want to ask in these kinds of cases, if you're in a strong anti-abortion state, do you have any ability to restrict the way in which your citizens try to get an abortion in a pro-abortion state? I think the answer to that question ought to be no. That is, I think the person is free to go, just as they're free to abandon the statehood. But one has to understand that the moment you go to the federalism option, uh, the relationship between the states is going to become a source of contest um, and disagreement where it never is if you've got a uniform national right. So what's going to happen in effect, this will not resolve every single question. They're the political questions that John mentioned. And then the interstate relationships but it will certainly change the the terms of the particular debate. But I think it will be sufficiently confused that I do not think there will be a popular groundswell against this decision. This opinion is not written in an effort to bait people or to get them angry. This opinion is written in a numbingly boring and thorough style uh, to emphasize the strength of the legal arguments, not to emphasize anything having to do with political hyperbole. And indeed, one of the things that seems to be missing from all of this is any discussion of the sociological conundrum that people find themselves in if they need an abortion they don't have money and the like of it i think the implicit assumption is those things should weigh very heavily on legislatures but they're not part of the constitutional discourse just one point uh i think richard's right on the opinion but for the first six pages so if people are going to sit down and read it the everything after page six sounds like it was drafted by clerks it's very thorough Lots of footnotes, mm-hmm. extensive discussion of every single factor, every argument, quotes liberal and conservative scholars. But I would urge everybody, read the first first six pages of the opinion. They read to me like they were written by Justice Alito himself. They're not written in that same style. And the only thing I can say about it, they're emotional and almost angry. And they're not angry at the American people. They're not angry. They are angry at the earlier members of the court. They say, how could you have been so wrong on Roe? How could you have not understood the facts of abortion? And then it's even angry, I think, at the justices at Casey in 1992 who said, oh, we're going to heal the land, bring everybody together, but not overruling Roe. And he basically says in those first six pages, those people did not do their judicial duty. They thought they were engaging in politics. They thought they could bring a consensus to the country. That's not our job. That I, I, I'm actually... Uh, quite stunned by those first six pages. I think they give you real insight into the mind of uh, Justice Alito. And then after that, you read what Richard's yeah. describing, a boring law review article with every factor, every argument. 
It's written without footnotes, but I'm going to read the first sentence of it. Abortion presents the profound moral issues on which Americans hold sharply conflicting views. And then he lists what the three views are. And he says, for the first 185 years after the adoption of the Constitution, each state was permitted to address the issue in accordance with its own, the views of its citizens. That's the federalism point. And then he says, even though the Constitution makes no mention of abortion, the court held that it confers a right to have one. All of this is accurate description. I don't regard this is inflammatory. What I think is any good opinion essentially wants to give an introduction, which gives the gist of the argument without the apparatus that supports it. And I think it's obviously clear that he starts to disagree with this, even though the Constitution makes no invention of the abortion. But the statement is, of course, true under these circumstances. And John, you're not old enough to remember the sort of response that everybody had at the time that this was coming out. But, you know, I was, you know, an academic, wrote a piece on it at that particular time. And the sort of response that everybody had was one of astonishment. I could still recall several people at the University of Texas who did an oral argument to practice for on behalf of, of Doe in this particular, or Roe in this particular case. And they reported to me before the case was decided, but after the argument, this was the biggest laugh fest that we'd ever had in our entire life. Nobody thinks that this thing is going to start to go anywhere. And it was the shock value of the reversal and the kind of strange sort of opinion that uh, Blackman wrote that attracted the attention. He never even specified the clause of the Constitution under which this thing was gone. And he didn't even argue that it was like the kind of penumbras that uh, our good friend uh, that uh, Justice Douglas did in a case like Griswold in Connecticut. So I don't think it's it's anything other than a, a kind of a summary. I regard it as, again, sort of understated. I think it'd be crazy for him to be angry at the first 60 pages six pages and then be boring on the rest of it. What it is, it's a pretty strong summary. And the clear lesson that he's supposed to learn from this is that this thing is utterly unauthorized. There's nothing in the text that supports it. And there's nothing by way of necessary implication that starts to support it. And he does it in that form because he wants to set up what I think is the correct approach is we then have to worry about overruling past precedent. And his attitude is it's much easier to overrule a past president that is normatively ungrounded than it is one uh, that seems to have good social sense. So it's not as though we're going to overrule Marbury and Madison and Martin against Hunter's Lessee, the opinions that establish the uh, federal power to declare federal statutes unconstitutional as well, or Martin against Hunter's Lessee, which gives the Supreme Court the power to review state statutes. I think both of those opinions are wrong, but if you try to overturn them, it would be a suicidal effort. And so it is always the question when you're dealing with overturning, if you think this case has made its way into the settled jurisprudence of the United States and is largely unassailable in terms of the ability of people to believe in it, it's going to laugh. So constantly, uh, Alito, when he gets to it, he says, is this part of the established long-term tradition that we have in the United States, the kind of right that everybody recognizes and understands? And he says, in light of the contention that we've had over the last 49 years, that can't possibly be the case. So I think, in effect, it's a pretty well-crafted opinion. And what's really going to be interesting about it is now that this thing is published, uh, we still have the two or three or four opinions that are left to be written. And uh, the dissenting justice is going to change the way in which they write their opinion, knowing that this opinion is already out there, um, taking a, essentially a pure federalism issue, trying to duck the moral questions that are obviously surrounding the abortion issue. 
This sets up nicely. The last thing that I will ask you guys on this special installment, once this is official, we'll come back and do a much longer show about this. But I'm going to read you, Richard, you alluded to parts of it. I'm going to read you sort of the nut graph from the draft, the one that's getting the most attention. We hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion, and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly rely upon, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. That provision has been held to guarantee some rights that are mentioned in the Constitution, but any such right must be and here he's quoting from another case, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. liberty? John Politico, where where this originally appeared, they editorialize in their reporting about this passage. That form of analysis seems at odds with several of the court's recent decisions, including many of its rulings backing gay rights. And this is a fear you're already hearing being stoked that this is the thin end of a wedge that could open up a lot of other areas of the law. How justified are those concerns? I mean, I could see that being a political concern, but that's not that problem is not in this opinion. I, I think actually people are not reading the opinion closely. There's actually several pages in the opinion about why this is not overruling gay marriage or another line of cases that I better more uh, closer to Justice Alito's heart cases where the court has said you have a due process right to raise the children the way you want or to teach them the language that you want to teach them. You know, right, uh, the due process right that protects the rights of parents and, and the family. And the court says this, and this is an interesting thing. This is something of a contribution, I think, of the opinion. It wasn't something that I had really focused on before. The court says abortion is unique and different from all those other due process right cases uh, in that in none of those cases does it does the choice extinguish another potential human life, right? So that gay marriage, right, according to Justice Alito, doesn't harm anybody else, right? Raising your kids in a certain way doesn't harm anyone else outside the family. So I thought that was a very interesting part of the opinion. And, and in this part, I do agree with Richard. Uh, the opinion in this respect tries to be modest. It doesn't, it's not trying to overrule the privacy cases. It's actually just showing Roe and Casey are this, this terrible avenue that the court got pulled on and didn't have to go that way when it was developing its privacy jurisprudence. Now, personally, I don't see where those other cases and those other rights come from either. But what the court and Justice Lee are saying is you don't have to overrule all those other cases if you overrule Roe and Casey. Now, I could see years down the line that some other groups might want to call on the court to overrule the gay marriage cases. And maybe they could say the logic of Dobbs really strikes against gay marriage. But it's not just the logic of Dobbs, as Richard says. It's the logic of federalism and the fact that most decisions are given to the states. The death penalty euthanasia. You can go on and on. Most of these fundamental life and death decisions are still in the hands of the states even now. And Dobbs does adopt this logic that is, I think, at base, inconsistent with some of these due process decisions. But the court identifies here a way where you can live with them both. 
Look, I have another way of putting this. Go back to Griswold against Connecticut. And this is a case which struck down in the na- in, in case of marital privacy, a law which prohibited the sale of uh, contraceptive devices in Connecticut. And this thing proposed a huge confusion. Some people said the moment you strike this down, Lockman against New York will come back. That, of course, never happened. But there was something else to remember. The only state in the union which had this silly law was, in fact, Connecticut. So it wasn't like Roe where you change the law every single state in the union uh, against the serious opposition of the people. What you did is you brought an outlier into law. And when you start looking at Obergefell and you see the way in which that thing has moved, uh, first of all, there's no fetal life that's at risk in a gay marriage. And secondly, it's a same-sex marriage. is a kind of a libertarian situation. Two people are free to get together in this thing. If anything, it is a kind of tribute to the terrible nature of uh, Plessy v. Ferguson, which prohibited, you know, prohibited anti, had anti-miscegenation laws and so forth, but was basically a libertarian decision. If you tried to do this through the court, I don't even think you could get a plaintiff at this particular point in time who would want to bear the heavy burden of trying to bring that case. Remember when Prop 8 was up, now they couldn't even get the state to defend a statute, which at the time was pretty obviously constitutional. So strong was the opposition. So so I think, in effect, what John says is right. This is a one-off and should be understood as a one-off. And that what happens is it would be a terrible mistake to say, oh, we're going to back off of what we did in row, even though it's correct for fear that it's going to uh, destabilize other kinds of decisions. I think it's way too premature to make that sort of decision. And I think the way in which the case law has broken today um, is going to be symptomatic of the way in which it starts to go into the future. So, um I think there are other areas where they're likely to move. And one of the reasons I think why Alito, rather than Thomas, wrote this opinion, when it came to some of the labor statutes dealing with the uh, segregation of expenses between political expenses and union expenses for public union, what happened is it was Alito who wrote the decision in the Queen case that blew all this thing apart. I read than Janice that uh, blew this whole thing apart. And so he is perhaps more willing to write the overruling opinions. I would be stunned if he would think that anything having to do with gay rights on this question or there, the Aryan gay rights, which will clearly give rise to an uproar, is if they start to tell religious institutions they must perform gay marriages if they perform straight marriages. They must ordain gay clerics in one form or another. I think what happens is the individual autonomy arguments are very solid. But if there's any effort to try and coerce people in religious organizations to behave inconsistent with sort of gay principles or same-sex marriage principles, I think that would generate an uproar. And I don't believe that's going to happen ever. All right, fellas, more on this soon, I'm sure. Thanks for coming together on short notice. And thanks to all of our listeners. Remember, please rate and review this show. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.